Well, good morning. <clears throat> really glad you're here. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, <clears throat> am glad you picked today to be here. We're wrapping up a series and uh, on the kingdom of heaven, the way Jesus talks about it in the Gospel of Matthew and the stories Jesus told, the parables of the kingdom. We're going to look at one of those this morning. Next week, uh, we're actually starting our Christmas series. We're calling it Christmas is Not Your Birthday. So turn to your neighbor and just say, Christmas is not your birthday. <clears throat> uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know I had to do that same exact thing. And uh, <clears throat> there's always one in every crowd. Uh, one of, if you go Todd Stivers, uh, he won't mind me calling him out on this. Uh, he sent me a message later that day, and his birthday actually is Christmas Day. And uh, he, he, his uh, teenage son, he turned to his teenage son when I had, had you do that, and he said, don't you dare tell me Christmas is not my birthday. <laughs> One in every crowd. Well, we're going to talk about, uh, about Christmas, and we're going to look at the characters in the Christmas story, the shepherds one week, and then Mary another week, and then Joseph another week, and what they must have been feeling and thinking, and what must have been going through their minds as they experienced the very first Christmas, and we have the Christmas concert, and our kids are going to sing one week, and... Uh, all the great stuff that happens at Christmas time, so I don't want you to miss any of that. But a huge part of that is that Christmas offering. Um, now, our goal is that we want to raise $75,000. We want to give every penny of it away. Now, you may say, $75,000, how are you? That's huge. How in the world are you going to do that? Well, we crunch the numbers. The average uh, salary, you take the average salary in our area, uh, take out your weekends, and uh, factor in the, the, uh, the per day what you might make that, to make that salary work. Uh, the average gift would be $200. If 500 people, and we have way more than 500 people who are part of our church, said, you know, I'll give a day's wages. Do the math. 500 times 200 is what? $100,000. So the goal is not even the issue. The issue is will we all participate and say, man, we can make, together make a tremendous difference. And what we want to do is we want to reach 300 families and we want to we want to make a difference in their lives. And what you're going to do is you're going to not, you can go to reallifecc.org slash Christmas. You can nominate someone's need after the Christmas offering, we cut a check, you take and you deliver the check to them. Now, it's going to take all of us, 300 people is a lot of people, take all of us looking around and saying, who, who can I bless this Christmas? Um, I want to read you one of the letters that someone wrote last year that d got to deliver the, the check. I want you to hear what she said. This is what she said. Where do I begin? <clears throat> this was the most amazing experience we've ever been able to be a part of. I don't know who cried more. The shock was just unbelievable. She was so incredibly thankful and overjoyed and was thankful to our church for the help. This has been such an indescribable experience for my boys and me. What an amazing idea to give back to the community. She's a single mother of three. Her hours had dropped to only 20 at work. Her windshield has been shattered since the summer and her tires were bald. She told me she's going to first thing tomorrow to get her car fixed. Man, I mean, it's just so powerful. I want you to be a part of that. I want you to experience it. Here's what I hope that you will start a new tradition around Christmas, around giving, not receiving. Because Christmas is really not our birthday. It's not, not our thing. Now, I, I, read, I saw in the news this week, I don't know where they got this data, but they said that around Christmas time, the average person's heart rate goes up 33%, which is equivalent to running a marathon. So if anyone ever asked you if you run a marathon, yeah, Christmas, I did, I did. Uh, <clears throat> But that's because of the stress, right? There's all these expectations that get thrown on us. I want to have this great experience and make sure I get the right gift and make sure I don't make that person mad and I make up for what I feel like I didn't do as a parent this year and I'm giving gifts. And we want to, how about if we just lowered all those expectations, took all, out, took all that out of the picture and said, we're going to start a new tradition as a family where we give instead of receive. So I'm, I'm challenging you to do that and be a part of that this Christmas. How about that? 
Okay, no one. That's great. That's awesome. Well, that'll be great. It'll be me and Aaron. It'll be awesome. It'll be great. Well, I want to read a parable to you from uh, Jesus' uh, lips, and I would like, I'd like to invite you to stand, if, if you would. It's our practice to do that around the scriptures. And I'm going to invite you to read this out loud with me. These are two parables that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. And read out loud with me uh, together. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to pray uh, before we jump into this, and uh, then we'll look at what this parable means for our lives. Uh, Lord, we're here this morning because we really need to hear from you. Uh, we, some of us are in a lot of trouble. Some of us are hurting very badly. Some of us are just clueless about what to do and where to go, and uh, we, we just need to hear from you. And so as we hear the challenging words that you give us and the comforting words that you give us, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, to receive the truth and let it soak down into our souls and into our lives. We pray this in your name. All God's people said, amen. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about two things that you need to know if there's a God. Uh, <clears throat> the first is this, uh, if there is a God, what does that God require of you? And the second is, uh, what do you mean to that God? Now, I'm, you say, what do you mean if there's a God? Well, we always, as Christians, we're, we're convinced, you know, there, that God exists and that Jesus is who he says he was and he died for our sins on the cross and he rose again from the dead and that has re-centered our lives. And, uh, but we know that not everyone thinks like us or agrees like us and we want to make space for people who are exploring and so um, we hope that you'll investigate and you'll try and understand if this is the case or not and our hope is that you'd be like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was one of the most influential Christians in the 20th century. He was an atheist, wanted nothing to do with God, was a very educated man, taught at Oxford University, wrote a lot of books and uh, his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, also a very influential writer, Lord of the Rings, all of that, if you know that. They were walking one night, and J.R.R. Tolkien was sharing his faith with his friend C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis became convinced of the truth about Jesus and uh, his life and his message. And he said, uh, I became the most, because he lived in England, I became the most reluctant convert in all of England. In other words, he was convinced of the truth and what it meant for his life. And he said, I can't not become a follower of Jesus. Now, that's our hope. But we want to leave room for you to say, okay, I'm going to explore that. So I'm just asking you the question, if there's a God, what does that God require of you? Um, what is, in other words, what does God ask of you? And in this first parable, Jesus tells us what God uh, asks of us and requires of us. And I've got I to give you the warning on the label, okay? The warning on the label is you might not be ready for it. Because it's harder than you could possibly believe. But the second question is just as important, is what do you mean to that God? Now, uh, if, you're, if you're of a certain age, you know what I mean when I say uh, you're dating somebody and you want to uh, take the relationship to the next level, and you have the DTR. You know what the DTR is? Define the relationship. You have this conversation, and you say, hey, is this going anywhere? Are we going to, what are we going to do? Are we serious? Are we together? Are we going to get married? What's the deal? You want to define the relationship, and when you have the DTR, what you're asking is, what do I mean to you? In other words, 
how valuable am I to you? Now, this is the same question that we need to ask about God. What, how valuable am I to God? Now, the same warning on the label is that you might not believe it because it's better than you could possibly imagine. So what Jesus does is he gives us these two parables. He gives them together because they paint a complete picture of those two questions. And he gives us two insights into God's kingdom. Now, I haven't, as we've worked our way through this, really explained to you about parables, uh, what they mean and where they come from and why they're important. If you're going to understand the message of Jesus, you actually need to understand the parables because they were his main teaching device. There are something like 27 parables in the New Testament. And if you're going to understand the message of Jesus, you need to understand that he taught in parables. Uh, In fact, in verse 10 of uh, chapter 13, just a little bit before Jesus tells this story, the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, why is it that you always teach in parables? And then Jesus unpacks why he does it. First off, he does it uh, because he says, I want to explain to you what God's kingdom is like. And so uh, the kingdom of heaven sounds like an abstract thought. So he puts this concrete story alongside it and says, maybe this will help you understand what God's kingdom is like. And, and the goal there is that you would be clear on the action that's being required of you. Because every time Jesus tells a story about God's kingdom, there's always action on our part that's required. Because right here, in fact, the first parable, Jesus says you have to sell everything. And Jesus wants it to be really clear. You have to sell, every, sell everything? What do you mean by that, Jesus? It has to be clear. But then Jesus says, I also teach in parables, basically, because it sounds like it's contradictory, but it's not, to confuse people. And the disciples are like, what do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> Jesus says, listen, when people really want to understand the truth, they'll come after it and they'll find it. Because what many of us are in the position of is we really don't want to have our life changed by the truth. We just want to feel a bit better. And Jesus says, when you want to have your life changed, you're willing to let your life be changed by the truth, then you'll really go digging. And I tell the, I tell the parables because sometimes the people who don't really want to have their life changed, they go, oh, I just didn't understand that. That was too confusing to me. But if you want to know, you'll find out. And he says this interesting phrase. He says, blessed are the ears that hear and the eyes that see. In other words, you can have eyes and, and ears and see and hear things and not see and not hear things. You can be spiritually blind and spiritually deaf to God. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say uh, blessed are the religious and not blessed are the non-religious. He doesn't say that. He says blessed are the eyes that see and the ears that hear. In other words, you can be religious and spiritually blind. You can be a spiritual person in your understanding of what that is and be completely deaf to what God's actually saying. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're religious or not. It's whether you're blind or whether you're deaf or whether you're not. Now, the other thing with the parables is that they're incredibly dangerous. Because Now, here's, here's what I know. Uh, Jesus was not killed because he taught love and kindness. Empires don't assassinate hippies. Right? They don't go like, oh, that, that's a dangerous message, love and kindness. What empires do is they ship them to California where marijuana is legal. That's what, they, that's what they do with hippies. Right? What, what, empires do, what empires do is they do kill threats. They get rid of them because they're a threat to their existence and their control. And the parables are subversive because Jesus says over and over again, there's a kingdom and this is what it's like. And if you're going to be part of this kingdom, you have to swear your allegiance to this kingdom. And so in his day, Jesus was in effect saying, listen, when the Roman national anthem comes on and everybody stands up and they put their hands over their heart and they recite the Roman pledge of allegiance with their hand over their heart and they say, I pledge my allegiance. Jesus says, don't do it. There's only one place you can give your allegiance. You can't pick. You can't have both hands. It's got to be one or the other. And the, the, the Roman Empire, they picked up on this. 
they understood what Jesus was really saying was subversive of the way they were in control and in power. And the parables are like that. If you take Jesus' parables in, they're going to subvert the way you think and they're going to subvert the way you live. They're really dangerous. Like use and read at your own, uh, own uh, caution. You'll get in trouble if you take them seriously. So what, is, uh, what does God require of you? This first parable is about what God uh, requires of you. And I, I really am being honest when I say you might not be ready for it. Because Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. In other words, it's, it's like something that's waiting to be discovered. It's a, it's a treasure waiting to be found and unwrapped and looked at. Uh, when, I was, when I was a kid at Christmas time, uh, my parents uh, would put the presents out, they put the tree up, and then they would start putting the presents out leading up to Christmas, like, you know, a week or two before, and it'd say from mom and from dad. And I liked, uh, I had models, I'd, I made models, I'd buy models of planes and cars, and I'd put them together, all those little parts, and, uh, and I, I had the whole little kit, like with the little X-Acto knife and the little paints and the paintbrushes, you know, and I'd do the whole thing, put this model together. And uh, <clears throat> what I would do is I would go when my mom wasn't looking, and I would say, I'd tell my parents, this is what I want. And I would go, and I would take the package from underneath the tree when she wasn't looking. I'd put it in the back of my pants, and I would pretend like I had to go to the bathroom. And so I would go to the bathroom. I would lock the door, and underneath the kitchen cabinet is where I would have stored my X-Acto knife. And then when I thought no one could hear, I would take the X-Acto knife out, and I would find, because my mom was really good at wrapping presents in a really neat way, I would take and I would slice right where the tape was at the end and on the side. And then I would pull the package out of the paper and I'd go, yes, I got what I wanted. And then I would take and I would push, I would put the, I'd put the package back in and I would take tape very carefully and make sure I put it in the exact spot where she put the tape. And then I would, because she folded it so neat, and I'd fold it back up and I'd put it back in my pants and I'd go walk back out and I'd put it underneath the tree, right? Because I wanted to discover what the treasure was. Now, my parents knew all along. I just didn't know they knew, right? They, they knew the whole time, right? But it was something waiting to be discovered. Now, Jesus is saying the treasure is like that. It's something you just can't wait. It's this thing that's there that if you discovered it, you just would be blown away by what you see. And Jesus says, when a man found it, he hid it again. Now, now it, Jesus doesn't say, did, you know, did he hear there was a treasure? Did he stumble upon it? Was he looking for it? It's kind of not the point. The point is, is that it's the kind of treasure that once in a thousand lifetimes you would come across. It, it would be like, and this is maybe not even big enough way of describing it, you came across an abandoned house that you found for sale and you went into the abandoned house and back in one of the closets underneath an old chair, you lift up the old chair and there is the publisher's clearinghouse check that says you've won $15,000 a week for life. And you realize this isn't actually a valid check. And if you own that house, you own that check, $15,000 a week for life. And so you go and you do whatever you have to do to buy the abandoned house so you can have the check. Now, I know that doesn't really happen. I get, I get it, right? You get my metaphor, right, what I'm trying to say. So the man found it. He hid it again. And then Jesus says, and in his joy went and sold all that he had. Because here was the law. The law was whatever was in the field belonged to the owner of the field. And so he hid it. And he went and in his joy sold everything that he had. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say that he waited. Jesus doesn't say that he, he went and talked to an advisor. Jesus doesn't say he went and talked to his accountant. He just went and upended his life. He sold everything that he had. So he sold his house and he sold his donkey and he sold his clothes. He sold uh, his tools. He sold whatever he had to sell. He, he emptied his bank accounts. It impacted his entire life. Because what he understood was that the value of the treasure was greater than the price he was going to pay for it. So what does God require of you? This is what Jesus is saying. Requires 
absolutely everything about you. Your money, your body, your words, your attitudes, your plans, and your time. Everything about you. Now, in Jesus' day, there was this really popular idea that people had about spirituality. And the idea behind this, uh, this idea about spirituality was that you could believe uh, whatever you wanted in your mind, and it didn't really matter what you did with your body or with your money or your words. The, the name of the, the idea was Gnosticism. And it was the idea that if you just had the right, if you had the right beliefs or the right theology or the right understanding about God, or you just decided you wanted to become a spiritual person, you could then live however you want. It didn't matter how you lived. In fact, it was like the best of both worlds. You could have God and run your own life the way you wanted to run your own life. In fact, the, the Gnostic version of this thing, would, they would say, well, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. Oh, it's the best. It's the, the greatest. It's the most wonderful. And you sing songs about the kingdom. He's a good, good father. I love it when they sing that song. Oh, it's so great. But it won't cost you anything at all. It's the best of both possible worlds. Now, um, this is, that's a, that's a, that was an old pop, popular idea then, but that's actually still a popular idea. In 2005, a guy named Christian Smith, uh, he decided, he wanted to understand what teenagers of 2005 thought about faith. What did we pass on to kids in 2005 about faith and about God and about the Bible? And so he interviewed people who, were, uh, who would say they were Christian teenagers, went across the country, uh, interviewed thousands of students and a big swath of, of people, and he said he found the same thing. Now, this is, I'm not throwing teenagers under the bus because they got their ideas and their understandings from their parents and the adults around them. But he said this is what it was. It was a, a form of Gnosticism. He, what he said, he called it, uh, and it's a big mouthful, and I'll put it on the screen for you. He called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, this comes out of his conversation with students. He just asked them, what do you think? And what do you think about this? And what do you think about God? And how do you understand God? And this is what they repeated over and over again thousands of times. And he said, man, this is what they believe. The idea is that there's a God who made things, but he's moralistic. So this is how he, he words it. He says, uh, what they mean by that is God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. I mean, that's not bad, right? Hey, let's be good and nice and fair to each other. He said, but the God they understand is therapeutic. So in other words, they believe that the goal of life that God wants for you is for you to be happy and feel good about yourself. Now, that's not bad either. That's like, hey, great. I hope you feel good about yourself. And then deism. Deism is the idea that God made the world and then is, is in some other place, is not actively involved. But the way they understood it, these teenagers, was God doesn't really need to be involved in your day-to-day -day life. In other words, you can believe whatever you want about God. Just be a nice person. Make sure that you feel good about yourself because that's what God wants for you. And, and really, you don't need God in your day-to-day -day life. That's really not that necessary. If moralistic, therapeutic deism or Gnosticism were to rewrite this parable, I think it would sound like this. I rewrote it, and it's just kind of corny, but just stay with me, right? The, I rewrote it. Kingdom of heaven is like an old pair of slippers a man used to love, but they got lost at the back of his closet. When the man found the slippers, he hid them again, and in his joy rented a red box on the way home to watch while wearing his slippers. It's just all about comfort. It's just all about feeling good, and it costs you absolutely nothing. Now, this, would be, this is kind of like, I'll give you another image to just try and flesh this out. It'd be like a cafeteria, right? It's like having the cafeteria plan of spirituality. Uh, this summer, our family was on vacation. We take a little tour, and we see friends and family, and 
we were somewhere in Oklahoma, and our, our van, I was driving, everyone was asleep, and our van was starting to overheat, and so I uh, looked up AutoZone, the nearest AutoZone, and I went to the AutoZone and found out that the radiator cap had a leak in it, and we replaced that. And then everyone woke up, and it was around lunchtime, and in this town in the middle of Oklahoma, and uh, we drive through there, and as we drive down the strip back to the highway, um, there is my middle son, Corbin, he's eight, his favorite restaurant in the world. We drove right past it, and his favorite restaurant in the entire world is Golden Corral. <laughs> right? I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm like, son, have we not taught you about Jesus? Do you not love Jesus? And you still love the Golden Corral? What are we missing here? How, do you, how are you like, because the Golden Corral, if you've been there, it's a trough, right? It's a horse trough. You go in there, and you're like, you look at the spoon. If you're a germaphobe, you're like, I am not touching that spoon, right? I'm not, uh-uh. And what, what's, what's the idea behind Golden Corral? You can pick whatever you want. If you want the chocolate fountain for lunch, have at it. Welcome to diabetes, right? I mean, that's like what you can, you can have at the Golden Corral. And if there's something on the line at the Golden Corral that is distasteful, distasteful to you in any way, you know what? You don't have to touch it. You don't have to have anything with it. You can just say, I don't want that. I want the chocolate fountain. Now, now this, is, this, is, this is the idea that was present in Jesus' day that Christian Smith discovered, and I argue is present today. That you can have whatever you want, and it won't cost you a single thing. And here's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is not like that. It's a treasure, absolutely. There's nothing more valuable than it, but it will cost you absolutely everything. Now let me translate, because that might feel a little too abstract. What do you mean by everything? Well, if every area of your life is not affected by your relationship with God and your understanding of the kingdom of heaven, then you're not actually embracing the kingdom of heaven. Well, maybe that's too abstract. Let me make it a little more plain. If what you do with your body, the way you express your sexuality, is not in line with how God says you're to use your body and express your sexuality, that's not the kingdom of heaven. If how you use your money and view your money and see your money, and you don't see that your money is a gift that's given to you, that you're to take, and as much as you are possible, take care of your family, but then invest back in people and into the kingdom of God, into God's family, the church, and make a difference in the world with your money. If you don't do that, you don't actually make that happen, make that a, re a, a practical part of your life, it's not the kingdom of heaven. See, we, we believe on both of those issues. We can do whatever we want. No one should be able to tell us because those are our private things. Jesus says no. It's a treasure. It's worth everything, but it's going to cost you absolutely No part of your life is going to be unaffected. If you are the kind of person that you believe you can have an idea about God and you can love God in your heart and you can sing songs to God, but how you treat people doesn't matter. You can say whatever you want to the people in your house and people you work with. You can flip people off driving down the road, but you love Jesus with all your heart. That's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not how it works. It's just, it costs you something. It's going to cost you absolutely everything. No matter what rationalizations you use to say, it's okay for me to do this, this, or this. Because you know what rationalizing is, right? It's rational lies that we tell ourselves. Uh, Richard Foster says it like this, our discipleship to Jesus Christ costs nothing less than everything. That's what God requires of you. And Jesus says the kingdom is a treasure beyond any value and is much greater than any price that you could pay for it. It's so valuable, it's worth giving up how you see the world and how you live in it. 
If that's what God requires of you, that's a lot. You might not be ready for that. But then the other part of that is, what do you mean to God? And you might not believe it. So Jesus tells another parable. Because in the first parable, who's, who's doing the seeking? The kingdom of heaven is this thing that's there, and there's a man that goes and finds it. See, the kingdom of heaven is there. You and I were the man that finds it, and then we give up everything for it. This is, the parable is reversed here, though, because Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. It shifts. Now, we're, first, we were seeking God's kingdom. Now, Jesus says the kingdom seeks us. It's like a merchant coming, coming for us. Uh, now, he says it's like a merchant. This is a traveling businessman. The picture, picture Jesus is painting is this is a successful traveling businessman. You don't become a successful traveling businessman dealing in a certain industry unless you know how that industry works and you know how, uh, what a good value is and you know when someone's trying to take advantage of you and how to work things for, for uh, the deal so you can, you can benefit from the deal. If, if that merchant of fine pearls didn't know a fine pearl when he saw it, he would go out of business and he would be a failure. But because he is a merchant who knows a fine pearl when he sees it, he can't afford to make a mistake because he, he knows always what he's looking for. When I bought my wife's wedding uh, engagement ring uh, 20 or so years ago, I went around and I did a little bit of research before Google. And so I did some research on diamonds. You know, I wanted to, I wasn't uh, right out of college and so I didn't have a lot of money and I wanted to get the best deal and get a nice diamond because that's what you're supposed to do. And so I went to all these stores after stores and there's, I, I think they call it the four C's or the three C's of diamonds. And, and so I knew what those things were. That I can't remember what they are now, but... Uh, I went to the store and I'd go round and round and I'd compare and it'd be like this, this many carrots and this color and this cut and this price at this store and this price at this store. I remember going to one store and I got in an argument with the guy who was there. It was basically an argument in front of all these customers. I got mad. I'm like, hey, how can you do that? At this store, it was this price and this store was this price. And I'm getting animated and he's getting animated. And finally, he says back to me, he says, what do you know? His point was, I didn't know a thing and I didn't. Right? <laughs> But the mer- see, here's, here's the, the guy, the merchant. The merchant, he knew what he was looking for. That guy knew what he was looking for. Now, I think the, the four C's of diamonds are cut, clarity, conniving, and cunning. I think that's, I think that's what they are. But it's a whole other deal. <laughs> right? But here's, here's what Jesus says. On finding one of great value. Now, let's pause for a second. What's the pearl? The pearl's not a what. The pearl is a who. Do you know who the, who the pearl is? You! You are the pearl of great price. You are the thing that the kingdom of heaven has been searching for for all of eternity. You, you're the pearl of great price. Now, when we hear that, here's what we do. We discount ourselves. I know. We hear that and we go, that's not true. I mean, if someone knew what I was like, they would never think that about me. If God really understood everything about me, he'd never think that about me. I mean, I'm a has-been. I'm a never-was. I'm a never-will-be-bun. I'm someone who can't stop drinking. I'm a fraud. If people just, it, it's just going to come out soon enough that people are going to find out that I'm a fraud. I'm, I'm a phony. I'm a fake. I'm a wannabe. I'm a poser. I'm, a, I'm an imposter. That's not what Jesus says about you. Jesus says you are the pearl of great price, of great value. Now, yeah, this merchant knows. Remember, the merchant knows what he's looking at. He doesn't make mistakes when he sees what he sees. Because he knows. I searched for the most valuable pearl uh, in the world currently, and I found this. Um, it's about two feet long. A fisherman in, uh, 
the Philippines found it. He was diving for clams, found it, and kept it in a closet in his house for 10 years. And it's valued at $100 million. That pearl, Jesus would say, has nothing on you. Nothing on you. Can't even hold a candle to how valuable you are. Absolutely nothing. So Jesus, you notice what Jesus says next, that when the merchant found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He emptied his bank account to have you. My wife uh, and kids and I watched a family movie last night, and we watched Annie. Uh, it's the modern thing. Jamie Foxx is in it, and um, some musicals, a little friendly, sing all these great songs. And uh, if you know the storyline, uh, Jamie Foxx in, in this version of it, he's a billionaire in New York City, and he's running for the mayoral race of New York City. And he stump, saves Annie one day from being run over by a, a car. And uh, they decide that it's going to be uh, of value to his campaign to have an orphan along with him. And so he brings her to live in his massive penthouse in New York City. And, and then he finally falls in love with this little girl and decides he's going to adopt her. And then through a whole series of events, uh, she gets taken away from him and, and thinks that they've found her parents, but it's really not. And she thinks that he tricked her. And uh, at the end of the movie, he finds her and rescues her because the, parents, the, the fake parents have been taking her away. And, and he gets her and he's like, I want you. And she said, no, you didn't, you didn't want me. This was all a stunt. And the reporters are all there. And he walks over to the reporter. He turns, he walks over to the reporters and he says, I renounce my campaign. And he goes back over to the little girl. And here's what he communicates. You were more valuable than that campaign. This is what Jesus is saying. You're more valuable. If you could think about heaven like this massive bank account that gets emptied on your behalf, that's absolutely how valuable you are. In fact, Jesus says it like this. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that that was lost. That's you. That's me. You're that valuable. You're the pearl that he's always been looking for. You're worth selling everything for. Um, God sells everything for you. Think about the characters in the Bible. Is there anyone else in the Bible or human history who gave everything to have another person? If you know the Old Testament, Moses is one of the big figures in the Old Testament. He didn't do that. He got mad at the people for not doing the right thing. If you know David in the Old Testament, the great king in the Old Testament, he didn't sell everything. In fact, he uh, slept with another man's wife and then had her husband killed so he could have her for himself. The only person in the Bible and in, I think in human history that's actually sold themselves so they could have the pearl of great price, that's Jesus. That's the only person. And you might go, well, I don't know if I would ever have the kind of faith where I could give up everything. I mean, I'm so attached to my money. I'm so attached to how I treat my body and what I do with it. I'm, I could never change that. Well, listen. Jesus is saying, there's one who did that on your behalf already. Jesus already gave up all, everything for you. Because he thinks you're the pearl of great price. Now, remember, Jesus' parables are there because we have to do something with them. We can't just hear them. If we just hear them and walk out, it's the cafeteria plan. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's Gnosticism all over again because we go, oh, that was a nice idea. Doesn't change my life. What are you going to do? If you hear that first parable, uh, then here's what you, you've got to do. You hear that parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. And when you find it, you sell everything you have. You have to open all the doors of your life to the leadership of Jesus. Think about your house, your life like a house. And you go, you let Jesus into the house and you go, okay, Jesus, you can come into any of the rooms of my house. And Jesus goes over to a door. And you go, oh, no, no, not, not that one, not that room. And then he goes to another, oh, no, I mean, I, I mean, you can go to that room and that room, but not there. Don't go in the basement. 
So you have to say, okay, Jesus, you can come into every room in my house and you can say whatever you want about what's in that room and you can rearrange the room and you can redesign the room and you can repaint the walls because my entire life is open to your leadership. Now listen, you have to make it really practical because it has to be about what you do with your body. And you say, okay, whatever I've been doing with my body, you get to tell me what I do with my body because it's not my body, it's the body you gave to me. So my sexuality, that's at your disposal, Jesus. I'm going to find out what you say about it, how it's supposed to be expressed, and I'm only going to do that. You look at your money and you say, okay, Jesus, I've, I've treated this like this is my money, and no one can tell me what to do with it, and maybe I've mismanaged it, I'm in debt, or I spend it all on myself. I'm not going to do either of those things. I'm going to let you teach me how to use my money so that it benefits people and benefits the, your kingdom and the people that you love. You open all the doors. You let Jesus all the way in. The second one is, if you read that second parable, um, then you, you do this, okay? Try this for the next week. Get up in the morning and look at yourself in the, in the mirror and say, I'm the pearl. I'm the pearl. I'd never seen this parable in this light till this week. I was studying this, and I just, I was astonished. I, I went over and over. I, my, my prayer all week was, I'm the pearl? You mean you wanted me? And I've been astonished all week. So I want you to get up this week, every morning, and go, I'm the pearl. And you're going to be astonished. And you're going to, that, that can't be true. I mean, because of this and this and this and this. But you're the pearl. The merchant knows what he's looking for. And when he finds one of great value, he finds you. He sells everything he has to have it. So get up this morning and do that. Now, in the words of this series, you do those two things. You, you say, okay, it's worth everything. But you've already paid everything for me. This is how you get a bigger life. Do you want it? Let's pray. Uh, Father, I know that um, most of us, we, we like our cafeteria plan. We don't like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> we like chocolate fountains. And uh, we don't uh, really, we really don't even know what's best for us. We just know what we currently prefer. God, some of us in this room, we're willing to say, okay, I'm done with the cafeteria plan. I'd like your plan. And God, we've got a thousand excuses and a thousand reasons why we're not the pearl of great price. We've got a, a list as long as our life about why we don't, we're not that valuable. And so I pray that you'd help us to see this week that you know what you're looking at when you look at us. You're the merchant and you know when something's valuable. And when you look at us, you know that we're valuable. So God, we want that. We want the kind of life that you give to people, not the kind of life we try and uh, cobble together for ourselves. We want the life that you give to people. And so uh, we want that. So however we need to change how we've been living or thinking, we're willing to do it. Thank you that your love is uh, bigger than our brokenness and our selfishness and our misunderstanding. Thank you. Thank you. We pray this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. We always leave you with a blessing and invite you to stand. You'll see people around you holding up their hands. It's their way of saying they'd like to receive a blessing. If you're okay with that, great. If you're not, that's okay too. But just receive this blessing. May you know the love of God for you, that he sees you like the pearl of great price. May that extend to the love you have for people, seeing that they're also pearls of great price this week.
May you know that you're sent now to serve the world in Jesus' name. Hug someone, tell them you love them. Our prayer team will be down front.